All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. In this session, we're going to continue our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 by looking at verses 13 through 19. And what happens here is after Paul has described and really kind of defended the integrity of his ministry in 1 through 12, it leads to a second thanksgiving. And so we already looked in chapter 1, verses 2 through 10, is the initial thanksgiving in the letter. That initial thanksgiving leads Paul then to talk about his ministry, as he does in chapter 2, 1 through 12, and describe both, as we said, his reception among them, as well as his manner of life among them, two things he noted in chapter 1. So he describes that in detail in 2, 1 through 12, and then out of that, it leads to a really, a almost a restatement of, and a second thanksgiving for the Thessalonians themselves. And so Paul says this, he says in verse 13, for this reason, and he obviously sees what he's about to say and the thanksgiving he's about to offer is directly tied to what has proceeded. So for this reason, what reason? Well, presumably the nature and the goal of his ministry. Paul has been recalling his work in Thessalonica and how he came as a spokesman for God to them and how he labored among them and cared for them with tender affection and how he taught them earnestly and diligently all for the goal of enabling them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so for this reason, for what my ministry was all about and how you responded to it, I thank God. That's the direction we're going here. So for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is also at work in you who believe. And so once again, the Thanksgiving centers on the Thessalonians' reception of and response to Paul's preaching, Paul's message. So his initial, his first Thanksgiving in chapter 1, 2 through 10 really was about their conversion and their response to Paul's preaching. And here we have that again. He says that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. So when the word of God came to you, when you first heard it, that's the idea of received, right? Like when it came to you, you welcomed it, you accepted it, not as the word of men, merely just a man's word, man's teaching, man's preaching, but you accepted it for what it really is, the very word of God, which, by the way, indicates that Paul believed and Paul knew that when he preached the gospel, he was preaching God's word. He didn't think he was just offering men's message. He, was, he believed he was a spokesman on behalf of God, speaking God's word, and that the Thessalonians received the very message Paul taught as that, as the word of God, which, he says at the end of verse 13, which also is at work in you who believe. And literally that phrase there at the end of the verse, which is at work in you who believe, is literally, which operates in you, which is effective in you. In other words, the word of God, when welcomed by a believing person, actually does something, right? Like it's effective. It works. It operates. It energizes. That's what the word of God does. It has the power to affect some sort of change, some sort of result. And and so we see that when God's word is joined with a believing heart, results happen. And that's what happened for them. And so God's word, notice, and that's in the present tense, which 
also is at work in you. But God's word is still ongoing, working in them, working among them as the church, working among them as individuals, uh, bringing about fruit and effectiveness in their life. Paul goes on to describe once again their initial experience of the gospel and their initial reception of the gospel. If you recall in the first Thanksgiving, Paul talked about how they became imitators of Paul and his team, as well as of Jesus, by receiving the word of God amidst opposition. He picks that up again here and describes in a little more detail this. He says, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. And so now, it's not just you imitated Paul and his team, it's not just you imitated Jesus, you also imitated the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. And so you imitated the, the churches there back where it all started in Judea. That's what he has in mind. Judea is the political region around Jerusalem. It's, uh, it's the political lo uh, locale of southern Israel, all right, in the first century. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the homeland, right? The, the Jerusalem church, the churches in the towns around Jerusalem. So you became imitators of those churches. How so? Well, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So they imitated the churches in Judea in this way. The churches in Judea endured suffering at the hands of their countrymen, namely the Jews, and the Thessalonians received the gospel and endured uh, mistreatment from their own countrymen, their fellow citizens there in Thessalonica. That's the point of comparison. And so you endured opposition from your countrymen. The churches of Judea endured opposition from their own countrymen, namely the Jews. Now, what Paul does at this point is he breaks off and he actually has some very strong, harsh words to say about the Jews. It's a little bit shocking because Paul is a Jew. It's a little bit shocking because in various places in Paul's letters, he speaks fondly of the Jews. It's shocking because in Paul's ministry, he believed he should go to the Jew first. And so we have to hear what Paul says here in the context of his total ministry. Paul's not completely opposed to the Jews. Paul longs for the Jews. Read Romans chapter 10, and now his heart breaks because he wants the Jews to believe the gospel and be saved. Uh, Paul loves his kinsmen and the Jews, and so we have to hear his words with these stinging critique and criticisms of the Jews that he's about to offer in the context of other things Paul says where he has affection for the Jews and love for the Jews. Also, before we look at Paul's critique and criticism of the Jews, we should at least ask this question. Why does Paul even bring that up? His focus initially is on the Thessalonians imitating the Jewish Christians in the sense of both welcoming the gospel and believing in it amidst opposition from their own kinsmen, the people around them, right? That's the initial place. But then he ends by saying, even as from the Jews, why does he bring that up? Well, it seems like, one, because of the uh, intensity and breadth of just the Jewish opposition. That's part of it. But two, if you recall the story of Paul starting the church in Thessalonica, where did the opposition come from? Well, the opposition, when Paul started the church in Thessalonica, came from 
the Jews. So there were some Jews and God-fearers in the synagogues who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, became followers of Jesus, and then in the course of a couple weeks, this led the uh, Jews in the synagogue to become very hostile towards and in opposition to Paul, his team, the gospel, and even the Christians there in town. And so the Christians in Thessalonica are experiencing opposition primarily from Jews, Jews in, in their own town. And so that's why it gets brought up here is that's where their own harassment and hostility and persecution is coming from as well. And so Paul wants to do some things to help these uh, initial believers there in Thessalonica put things in perspective. The Jews claim to be God's people. The Jews claim to be the ones who know the truth. The Jews claim to be the faithful ones. And they're uh, opposing the believers there in Thessalonica and Paul's like, let's just put things in perspective. Remember, it was the Jews who killed Jesus. It was the Jews who opposed the church the first time. It's like, this has been the pattern since the very beginnings, beginning clear back with Jesus himself. They have been opposed to the message about Jesus and the gospel of God in Christ. And so he's doing this to help them have some perspective on really their experience of Jewish opposition right there in Thessalonica. All right, with all of that then, let's listen to Paul's stinging rebuke of and criticisms of the Jews that he lists here in verses 15 and 16. This is what he says. The Jews are those who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And so his initial, initial critique is they're the very people who killed Jesus. They also killed the prophets. When you think back to the Old Testament, they had problems back then. There was some unfaithfulness there. And not only that, they drove us out, seemingly meaning the apostles. They drove us apostles out. One of the things this also uh, shows us is that when Paul uses the word Jews here, it seems as if he's using it in a way very similar to the way the apostle John uses it in the gospel. That is, the word Jews doesn't refer to all Jews in general. It refers primarily to Jews in positions of power, Jewish leadership. It's the Jewish leadership that's causing the Thessalonians problems, right? The, the leaders of the synagogues, those with influence and power, they're the ones that's stirring up trouble for the Thessalonians. It was the Jewish leadership that killed the Lord Jesus. It was the Jewish leaders of the prophets' day who caused problem for the prophets. And it was the Jewish leaders, those with power and influence, who drove the apostles out. And so when Paul is critiquing the Jews here in verses 15 and 16, he's primarily thinking about not all Jews in general. There are some Jews who have believed the gospel right there in Thessalonica. He's thinking particularly of Jews, meaning those Jews in positions of power and influence. And so it's those Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and killed the prophets and drove the apostles out. Paul says, to follow that up, they're not pleasing to God, but they're hostile to all people. And so they may be claiming to be the ones who please God and to have the truth of God and to know God. And, you know, historically, all that's true. But their opposition to Jesus and the very work of God, clear back from the days of the prophets up through the present, their opposition to all of that shows that they're not pleasing to God. Rather, they're hostile to all people, which was really a 
a critique that the Romans had about the Jews. In fact, Tacitus said this about the Jews. He said, they are filled with a terrible hatred for all others of a kind normally reserved for enemies. This is sort of the the common perspective on the Jews from the Greek and the Romans living with them in their various cities throughout the empire. And it really reflects that attitude. And Paul says, in reality, that's sort of the truth. That's sort of the truth that Jews have such a disdain for Gentiles that they are hostile to people. And the very reason that the hostility in Thessalonica ever flared up was because Paul began preaching the gospel to Gentiles and Gentiles began believing it. And that led the Jews, particularly the Jewish leaders there in town, to get jealous and bent out of shape and angry that somehow Gentiles should be welcomed into the very truths of God in Christ. And so they're hostile to all people. Verse 16, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. There's the evidence of their hostility. And that is exactly what happened in Thessalonica. And in fact, when you read the book of Acts, that's what happens over and over again in Paul's ministry. The vast majority of opposition and hardship that Paul experiences in his preaching ministry throughout the Mediterranean doesn't come from the Romans and doesn't come from the Greeks. It comes from the Jews, or it comes from the Jews who work in league with and stir up the Greek and Roman authorities. So the Jews constantly are hindering Paul from speaking the Gentiles, speaking the gospel to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles might be saved. And so Paul says the result of that, the result of This hostility, the result of the Jews, particularly the Jewish leaders, acting this way is that they always reach the limit of their sins, that their sins have really, they filled up the full measure of their sins. In other words, this is like the epitome of their disloyalty and disobedience to God. God uh, sent the Messiah, they rejected him that God had said clear back in the days of the prophets, they were supposed to be a light to the nations, right? And they, they are now hindering the word about the Messiah from going to the nations. And so they have filled up the full measure of their sins um, with the final result that wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Wrath has come upon them fully in this translation, but it's literally to the end, to the fullest or at last in the NIV. It's the idea of wrath has come upon them to the utmost. And the idea seems to be that uh, the Jews, and particularly the, the Jewish leadership and right, the Jewish kind of authority structures and power structures, they're, they're, under, they're, they're sitting under the wrath of God. And again, Jesus even seems to say this in his prediction about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, that God is going to punish them and pour out his wrath upon them. And the initial expression of that is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And uh, shy of repentance and uh, return and belief in Jesus Messiah, that's going to continue right up until the end, right? And so um, the Jews, as those who are, are opposing the very work of God, now centered on God's work in the Messiah, are under the very wrath of God. This is a scathing denunciation of the Jews, particularly the Jewish leadership, Paul's very own people. Um, And 
it, it grows out of, I think, his experience from those Jewish authorities in his ministry over and over again, suffering opposition, persecution, and hostility from them, and their re- rejection of Jesus as Messiah. And yet, even though there is this scathing denunciation, again, I just have to restate, don't overstate uh, what Paul says here, because turn to Romans chapter 10, turn to other places in Paul's writings where he affirms the value of the Jews. He shares his heart for the Jews. He pours out his love for the Jews. Watch Paul in his ministry continue to go to the synagogue first and then to the Gentiles. So Paul's heart is for them to believe the gospel, and he cares deeply for them. So this is a scathing denunciation of the Jews, but it's done so in the context Context of what's going on in Thessalonica and their experience of Jewish harassment and Jewish opposition right there in town. And so this serves to establish the young and newfound church in the fact that, you know, you really are God's people in the Messiah, regardless of what you're experiencing or hearing from the Jews in town. You really are God's people, and the Messiah really is true. And if the Jews are the ones still actively persecuting the Christians in Thessalonica, which we would assume they were, then this this denunciation serves to really further draw a line between the Jews and the Christians. It is the Christians who are God's people there in Thessalonica. From there, Paul turns once again to his relationship with the Thessalonians, specifically this time explaining his absence. This is what he says in verse 17. He says, but we, brothers and sisters, having been orphaned from you by absence for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. And so he returns to this theme of their relationship, specifically his absence. And so notice how he describes his absence, having been orphaned from you. That word orphan, the strong word of right, like being torn apart, bereft from you is the idea for a short while. It's to be torn away. It's a strong word frequently used for children who were orphaned or or whose parents uh, had died, right? Like they, they have no family. And so Paul's like, that's the way it felt for us. Like I was like your mother and like your father while I was there. And then we were forced to leave and we can't come back. And it feels like I'm orphaned from you. I'm torn away from you. This sudden separation under difficult circumstances. And so Paul wants him to know his heart is still with them, right? And so we were orphaned from you for a while in person, not in spirit. Uh, We're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Like, man, we were longing to see you. We wanted to be with you. Paul says in verse 18, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and Satan hindered us. Now, we're not told how Satan hindered us. Um, That's Paul's way of thinking, man, the, the opposition. There's something impeding Paul from getting there and lying behind all of that, as far as Paul is concerned, is the devil himself. My suspicion is it's the bond that Jason paid that's really keeping Paul from coming. Um, and Paul has sent Timothy, he, right? He's going to send Silas, right? Like he's, they've had some connection, but it's been very limited and very small. And Paul himself hasn't been able to come at all. Um, and Paul says the reason for that ultimately is not people, but it's Satan himself. Lying behind all that is the devil himself. And I suspect it's because Jason had paid this bond. And if Paul showed up, it would cause all sorts of problems. So Paul's like, 
we're, we're just going to stay away. So I wanted to come to you more than once. Satan hindered us. And then he says this, listen, for who is our hope or joy or crown of pride in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not indeed you? You are our glory and our joy. And so Paul's like, man, I wanted to come to you. Why? Because you're, you're our hope. You're our joy. You're our crown of boasting, crown of pride in the presence of our Lord Jesus. And this is a beautiful, really, description of how important they are to him, that they're his hope. In some sense, they're the object of Paul and his team's hope. Right? Like they, Their ministry is all about seeing people come to know Jesus and follow Jesus, and they're doing that. And they're his joy, right? Like they bring joy to his life and a sense of delight. Why? Because of their, their genuine conversion, their genuine faith. They're his crown of pride. They're his crown of rejoicing and exultation. There's two different words for crown in the Greek language. One is like a royal crown, a ruler's crown, and then there's a victor's crown. That's what we have here, a victor's crown, the kind of crown someone would get if they won an event at the Olympic Games of their day. They would get a victor's crown. Well, Paul says, that's you. You're like our victor's crown. Like the uh, reward we get for our faithful service is you yourself, and you're our crown of exultation or pride. That word pride is this idea of proud rejoicing, like our celebration. Yes, yes, this is what we worked hard for. This is what matters to us. That's you. And so all of these terms serve really to describe the importance of the Thessalonians to Paul and to his team. So you will be our pride and joy at Jesus' coming. That's the idea. And so they are incredibly special to Paul and to his team. Now, let me wrap this up with just a few little reflections again. And really it's this, that hostile responses to the message that Jesus is the risen Lord, and really to all of God's word, isn't unusual. It's normal. It's been going on. You can see it with the prophets in the Old Testament, right? It happened to Jesus. It happened to the apostles. It's happening to the Thessalonians. It happens still to this day. Hostile responses to the message about Jesus is actually part and parcel of following Jesus himself. It doesn't mean something's gone wrong with God's plan. It doesn't negate the truthfulness of God's message. And I think that's part of why Paul shared this at this point in the letter to the Thessalonians. He's really trying to bolster their faith that just because you're experiencing this difficulty, don't think that this means the the message is false or that your experience is somehow negated. In fact, Paul seems to imply here that there's far more going on in this world than meets the eye. The opposition to Jesus and the gospel puts folks at odds with God, right? They're they're under wrath. Not not just the human persons either. Behind some of the ordinary frustrations of life and the difficulties, you know, Paul wanting to go visit them, there's a real arch enemy of God, Satan himself, and he's at work in this world to frustrate the good plans of God and his people, and yet ultimately he'll be dealt with. And so all of this tells us that as we follow Jesus, as we teach and proclaim Jesus, don't be surprised by opposition to Jesus. It just seems to go with the territory.